Okay, are you ready? No, I've just got to find that thing which I've got here and I can't get it. Yeah, I've got it. Far away. For those of you who are regular listeners, you will know that this is a bit different from our usual interviews. And if this is your first time listening, well, I am delighted you could join us. This is Matthew Grant, one of the partners at Instec London. Robin Mertens and I are back with our quarterly chat. But if this is not your thing, well, we've over 150 excellent guests to listen to in our back catalogue of episodes. Now, talking about back catalogues, a special mention this week for Vamsi Danturti, listening in from Atlanta, Georgia, who contacted me to say he'd only discovered the Instec podcast two weeks ago, but has been binge listening since then. Thank you, Vamsi. And in fact, thanks to all of you that have been telling me you've been listening and what you think. Well, you've got 30 minutes of Robin and I coming up, so I'm keeping today's introduction short. Here we go. Morning, Robin. Everything okay with you? It is today. Uh, yesterday, I was slightly hungover after our party. I, I got overexcited seeing everyone again. Um, but now I'm right back to, to your, my freshest best for you today. Well, good. And, and have you had lunch yet? Because we're recording this at lunchtime on a Friday and nothing worse than standing in between Robin Mertens and his lunch. Uh, well, no, you have made that mistake. I'll forgive you. And, and I've got a curry tonight. So um, I'm holding back. Yeah, we had our, our party last week. I was just thinking about that. We talk about talking to 200 companies a month. I think we probably covered 50% of those in one evening, didn't we, on, at the uh, Southern Cathedral Garden? After a long time of not meeting people, you forget how productive those things are in, in the sense that five to ten minutes of talking to somebody uh, over a glass of rosé makes you realise how much opportunity you can generate by catching up, talking about what you're doing, seeing where the planets align. There must be 10, 12, 15 interesting things that came out of that that I followed up subsequently, which would normally, in the world which we've become used to, just take a long time to, to tease out. And uh, just looking at beyond just what we're up to, but what, what have you been seeing this week that's been engaging you more broadly across the market? The announcement that the PPL refresh with CGI uh, it has been halted means that people who know about my past come in and ask me to comment. Um, and it did highlight to me how there are two worlds out there. That, that You can see how exciting the insure tech world is, the money that's in it, the sense of can do about it, which contrasts with a message I got yesterday from a well-known London market commentator. Robin, do you really think insure tech is going to change the mindset of the noise market? Loads of investors know clients. The CGI initiative tells it all. And there are rumours that people at the very top at Lloyd's are in trouble. As with RI3K, PPL keeps taking money but delivered nothing tangible. What do you have to say about that? Says. So, you know, there are still those who just don't believe. And, you know, they're very welcome to their opinion, but they'll never persuade me that I'm wrong. Well, I guess every industry needs its naysayers uh, just to sometimes prove the fact they're kind of missing what's going on. But just for those, you know, given now that majority of our listeners actually now outside of the UK might not be familiar with PPL, can you just say a couple of words of what that actually means and maybe what it is in practice? This is a dream for uh, some of us in the London market, which is a platform around which uh, the, the market can congregate and fulfil the more complicated end of risks 
electronically, you know, digitally. Uh, and, and there's been several iterations. Of course, in the early stages, it was a difficult thing to get through. But now it's institutionally backed. It's mandatory. Uh, Lloyd's and a lot of market have invested a lot of money in it. But in truth, it's really struggling to get over the line. And the PPL stands for Placing Platform Limited. Uh, and, and CGI were given the task of re-platforming it. Uh, but, but in truth, it's very complicated. And the processes we have in London are very complicated. So there's just a permanent battle. It doesn't lend itself naturally to digitization. That's the truth. And the RS3K reference, that was, of course, where you were one of the co-founders of that organization and you know, maybe a little bit too early for the market, but you know, certainly said the seeds of electronic placement and platforms. We used to have a lot of laughs by asking people, how long did you think it would take before the market went electronically? And we used to laugh at anybody who said it was more than five years. But, but, but 20 years later, we still haven't quite got there. But yes, that, that's how it all started. RI3K 20 years ago. And that's what got me into this. And then I've remained sort of stubbornly determined to fulfill my kind of desire to see the market uh, go digital ever since. Well, there's a great quote I actually use, come back to quite a lot, and this is more intended in terms of, I think, crossing the desert, but it says, don't mistake a clear view for a short distance. You know, just because we can see what the vision is, we shouldn't you know, underestimate the difficulty of getting there. My, my version of what you just said was seeing people carrying around those files, stuff full of paper 30 years ago now, thinking well, that's got to change soon, and we're going to have standard formats. And, you know, why I guess the COVID situation has forced people to start walking around with those files, you know, they may well come back again in a few months. We're just about to release our report on data ingestion and extraction. And that's a problem the market shouldn't have really, or insurers shouldn't have anywhere, because why are people still sending around PDFs and spreadsheets when there's much more effective ways of sharing information? So I think, yeah, you know, that's some of the, the sort of challenge of being a visionary is you've got to actually just go the hard yards to make it work. And it doesn't always happen very easily. But at least the interest in what we're doing is expanding. One of the joys of being at the party was to, have a bit of time with our team, which which has gone in a very short period of time to just three or four of us to nine. I mean, you're busy recruiting. What are the holes we filled, and and what are we what do we got ahead? Well, I think the first thing is just a warning to watch out. Uh, you and I have enjoyed writing our reports, but we've been putting in long hours and weekends, and we get it just across the line on the final hour, and it all comes together. Well, Rebecca Boston, who's joined us from IHS Market, has been fantastic about just jumping straight in, and it's actually it's a great example of people that look at insurance sometimes and it's just too complicated to understand. Rebecca has just jumped in, taken leadership on getting my report across the line. And I'm going to warn you now, there is going to be no chance for Robin Merson's handing his homework in late because she's going to be on the case very early. Uh, and also helping us, you know, just make those reports a form that people can actually ingest, ingest them more easily, excuse the pun. But, you know, really call out some of the key themes from that. So we've got Rebecca and then I think, as we mentioned before, we've got Ali and Henry. Again, you know, two very smart graduates have joined us knew nothing about insurance. Henry had a, has got a background in ancient Greek, and he has now become our expert on crypto, and actually was interviewed by one of the leading press for that. And he's kicked off the Parametric Newsletter, which has got over 600 followers, which for a newsletter that's been going two months, you know, in quite a specialist area, I think is fantastic. And really the idea behind that is if you want to know what's been going on in parametric insurance in the last couple of weeks, you can look at the newsletter. We're kind of keeping it pretty slim in terms of fluff and other people's thought leadership, but it's really focusing on the news. So, yeah, really strong team, really, really pleased what's happening. And I think it will allow you and I to do a bit more of what we enjoy, which is you know, driving that vision and bringing, bringing people together who, who share our belief in what can be done. I thought it was very unkind of you to give Henry non-fungible tokens 
to write about when he'd only been in the company a couple of weeks. That was a sort of trial by fire. And um, there were, we've got some more reports on the way. We're going to talk about how you ensure commercial assets in a connected world. And I mean by that sort of commercial property, ships, cargoes, plants, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I'm very intrigued to see the growing use of algorithms uh, across insurance. And I don't mean by that algorithms to price, but, but algorithms to do all kinds of things. We've talked before about smart follow in the London market, you know, smart renewals, um, um, claims fraud propensity, these sort of things. There's lots of different ways in which algorithms are being used. And I think we might explore that in a report over the next couple of months as well. On that report, I mean, uh, probably the most well-known example is key, the you know, spin-off from Brit, who got $500 million of funding last year. Uh, you know, best example of an algorithmic syndicate and trading. But just before we move off that topic, how, the question that kind of engages me on this is how that's going to work, given what we've just talked about, you know, still with the challenges of getting data into the market. And, you know, and particularly if you talk to people about why aren't they getting better data from their brokers or from their different markets around the world, you know, the answer is if I ask for better data, then they just won't bring me the, the business. Is, do you think that's going to be a barrier to the algorithmic syndicates? You can have all the great analytics in there, but if you can't get the data coming in or you can't get the risks coming in, you can't really run the algorithm. A good proportion of the report will be about how do you put yourself in a position where you can make any make use of algorithms because you haven't got the data to feed them and you can't get hold of that data and it's not of high enough quality and um, available reasonably instantly, then um, you've wasted your time building algorithms. I know that that was a big part of the task that Brit and, and the key syndicates faced down. And having talked already to a few people who are working hard on similar propositions or related propositions, uh, that's the bit that's holding them back. Uh, I, I mean, everything comes back to data. And it's the same issue with the connected Insurance reports, you know, that, that there, there is huge value in um, instant data, which is connected to the asset itself, which will tell you where the asset is, the condition it's in, whether or not certain things have happened to it. Um, but we've been unable to mould in any way a relevant insurance proposition around that because we don't know how to use the data. The, the, the themes always come back, it seems to me, to data and our inability to optimise how we use it. Uh, and these are just a couple more examples. It might end up being that is one of the drivers for change. I mean, as these syndicates move forward, of course, they can take a lot of costs out of it because by definition, they're not doing manual entry and intervention. So they have to rely on good data and therefore they can be more profitable or compete on price. But I think that is going to be one of the big drivers you know, for getting that better data coming through. Um, just on, on the topic of uh, algorithmic syndicates, it's a good segue to the podcast. I met somebody on Wednesday evening we had our event and uh, from Vave, the, the Canopheus syndicate, she claimed to have listened to every one of our podcasts, that includes all yours Robin, uh, and I'm still smiling so uh, that's, and she came into insurance from outside of it, so her education has been 100 I think it's 47 podcasts now it's, I would hate to think how many hours that is but you know we reached our 100,000 downloads recently as well so it's good to know at least they're being helpful for somebody, so thank you, Katrina, if you're listening. Very much appreciate that support for us. You should introduce her to Nigel Walsh. I think they get on incredibly well. Uh, and then um, other things we should talk about is the events, uh, both what we're doing and, uh, and and what lies ahead. I'm amazed by how well our virtual events, our webinars, hold up. There's a sort of 
uh, overarching theme that people are very tired of of um, live chat type of stuff. But that, that's not reflected in the stats that we've got. Not at all. I mean, they're getting better. I mean, they're getting better in the sense of higher conversions. So you know, we did one recently with Fathom and NASDAQ. I mean, it was a very interesting topic. I mean, of course, they all are. This was particularly timely, I probably should say, around the re- recent Bank of England stress test related to climate risk we should talk about. Uh, but, you know, Robin, maybe sometimes we're, we're a bit too modest. I mean, we do try and keep these things pacey. You've always been a great uh, advocate of not using too many slides. And uh, fortunately, Arena Help got me out of a hole with the Fathom one. We had one slide and I actually managed to delete it before we actually even got to it. But I'm glad to say I redeemed myself this week when we had we had one of our guests with slides and we actually talked through them. And it was actually quite a nice dynamic discussion. I think, you know, these I think what we get bored of is someone's presenting 30 minutes of slides and you can't really ask a question or engage. But I think, you know, we've seen a very good attendance rate. We see people listening all the way through because we track when people drop off and then we see people. You no, know, you don't have to watch these things. You can often listen to them. Um, afterwards, and yeah, we can be managed to do one every couple of weeks, and we've still got a good catalogue coming up. And then back with the live events, which we should talk about coming from um, September the 14th onwards. What, what I like is is we get the chance to talk to two different audiences. That the you know the virtual events have transformed us in the last 18 months from being substantially UK based and UK influenceable. To having a, a really big proportion. I mean, in 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 most cases, at least 25% U.S. audience, um, more and more from continental Europe as a result of, um, you know, dabbling in the issues that uh, have a more interest to them. So I, you know, I like the idea of being able to broadcast to a global audience one minute and then and then hunker up in the steel yard um, as we will do from September and 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 do these physical events too. I think the hybrid will remind us of how much. Or he says in a self-serving way, you know, we can bring in terms of, of of creating a community and helping that community meet each other and network. One characteristic I've noticed, you know, seeing people in real life versus seeing them on Zoom or something else is everyone looks a lot bigger. And someone said to me on Wednesday, said that Robin Merton's fellow, he's really quite tall, isn't he? So I'm not quite sure what they expected. I thought that was going to get worse. I thought you were going to say he's really quite fat because there's a couple of I got a couple of comments along those lines, too. Yes. Just because lockdown hasn't been very kind to me, uh, there's no need to point it out when you get the chance to meet me for the first time in 18 months. Well, you, you know, you've been working very hard sourcing venues for our dinners. And that's the other thing. You, we talked about our back in the steelyard you know, with the 250 people. But we've also actually got a, quite a full calendar of dinners coming up. And we've run those very successfully. And I know, you know you, you, you've taken one for the team being out checking out restaurants and maybe put on a bit of weight whilst you've been doing that. Well, it doesn't show. But, you know, how, what, are you, what are your sort of top picks for restaurants? Are you going to give away what those are? You know how much market research has gone into this. And that research goes over a 20-year period. I love Canto Corvino in Artillery Lane in the city. It's upmarket Italian, as you, much Italian in, in London can be simply dreadful. Um, these guys are, are terrific. They have a really nice private room. And as you know, what really tips things over the edge for me is a, the wine list, which is predominantly Italian and rather splendid. So we're, we've already got uh, a dinner or two booked there. Uh, and then I'm, I have a thesis that we don't have to be quite so close to the city these days. The Vinoteca uh, in Marylebone is the other venue. And, and we start these dinners from, I think, the 15th, 16th of September, uh, and I'm pleased to say that we've got three or four booked in, and and we'd be delighted to hear from anybody else. The chance of getting 
12 to 15 people uh, with a shared interest around a table, two or three quality hours to, to speak to them is something which I know there's a lot of pent up demand for. Yeah, and it's often the you know, best way to get to senior people in the industry who you know, may not have time or want to talk about things otherwise who are actually you know, quite frank and open in those sort of slightly more uh, closed environments. And that's actually, I guess, why anybody, if anybody's listening from outside of the UK who is uh, planning to come over to the UK, and I know a few of you are because I've been talking to you about it, please do let us know because also you know, it's great to welcome people from outside of the country either to dinners or, in fact, to the events. I think, Robin, you know, we should probably have a special deal for people coming overseas to our events, you know, because now they're getting so busy we're charging people. Some people are actually even organising their trip around our events, so we better make sure we keep the quality high. But uh, great to have that global coverage that we uh, increasingly have managed to do in the last year and a half. I can't give any total guarantees about the quality of the company they will keep, but I will give guarantees about the quality of the food and wine we'll provide. That will be right up there, top notch, and well worth getting on an aeroplane for. Well, I, I've been uh, at the receiving end of your advice on many things, actually, uh, in, not just on food, but, but books and wine and uh, various other things. It's always been very high quality advice. So, yeah, now, if it's got the Merton's blessing, I'm sure it's going to be good. But, I mean, enough about us. People are probably wondering what we spend our time doing rather than talking to each other. We've got some breaking news this week in terms of funding, which actually, as we're recording this, hasn't gone live. But when we put this out, it will be, new, will be news. I was going to say that, that the insure tech world can't possibly say can't afford our dinners uh, because the amount of money that's out there now is, is absolutely spectacular. We now have um, um, several unicorns in, in, in the stable, the, the, the very latest one being Tractable, who use artificial intelligence to take uh, data from images from which they can auto-estimate costs of repair uh, and provide other insights. Um, they've raised $60 million uh, in their last round on on what is a a, a billion-dollar valuation. And, and I think then probably there's even more recent news that we happen to know about. Yeah, the breaking news this morning from Ed from Flock, uh, CEO, is that uh, Flock will be announcing, or as this goes live um, a week after you record it, will have already announced last Thursday $17 million of funding from quite a major U.S. investor, which is a you know, great, great opportunity for them. Ed, of course, as many people know, was one of the most popular podcast guests. I don't quite know how much credit we take for him raising his funding, but he never did a little bit, little bit counts. And of course, he was also up on stage quite early on back in our early days, and I think found some of his the flock employees through our events. So, you know, every little bit we can do to help our members, uh, we'd like to be able to contribute to. There are astonishing amounts of money. I mean, that, you know, we shouldn't forget. Um, Cape Analytics, you know, they've raised 44 million. There's Rails Bank, who are new members who came out of the embedded report, who who um, provide the technology that brings banking to insurance. So, so they have payment rails, they have um, you know credit credit cards, these sort of things that they bring to insurance. They've raised 70 million. They're a very early stage company, and, and they're clearly seen as that that. That theme is clearly seen as very hard. That whole embedded insurance one, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but you did a fantastic job on that report. Excellent piece of work with a lot of companies in there. What's been the follow-up, Robin, from that and people that have come back to you uh, and given you their opinion on it? I think of all the insights and all the commentary, it focuses on one thing, that the opportunity of embedded is only available to the people who have the right technology. 
It's basically the ability to embed an insurance-specific buying journey into somebody else's customer's or customer journey. So it's it's an adjunct to a, a bigger, more important relationship and or someone else's customer journey. And neatly described by, you know, do you want chips with that? I mean, do, do you also want insurance? But the only people who can do that are people who have easy-to-integrate technology, access to e- immediate data, and the ability to build very, very simple ability to buy, you know, configurable technology. There's almost no insurance company that can do it. And we probably exclude Wacam from that who spent five years and a lot of money putting themselves in that position. But but there are so few uh, that it's, it is provided this massive opportunity for what we're increasingly calling tech-enabled MGAs, who have taken all the value chain from distribution all the way down to the capacity. And uh, I think it's a really good example of why insurtechs have the valuations that they do. They, they have taken a big chunk of the value chain. And between distribution and capacity in, in the areas that lend themselves to embedded insurance, you know, they control the space. And those that do it, you know, the Quovers and the Zegos of this world, that's why they get the sort of valuations that, 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 that get attributed to them. What do you think are the lessons? You know, if you go back five years ago, there were quite a lot of those early insurtechs that were trying to do sort of hyper-personalization of insurance for personal lines, you know, insure your camera on and off and and you most of them either have disappeared or have pivoted into something else or they've been acquired. It's just, I guess it's nature of how innovation evolves and it becomes something we, you didn't think it was going to be. But what, what, any takeaways from that sort of change that we've seen over the last five years and shift to embedded? Is that, is that replacing what people are trying to do then or is that still a viable offering to do that kind of hyper-personalization? No, it replaces it. Somebody like Trove built really good technology uh, and then because we didn't know any better at this time, went uh, B2C. And I think that five to six years on, we've learned that B2C is really, really hard. And the natural evolution of it, which Trove now play a you know, more than healthy part in, is go and talk to a distributor who has a trusted brand, whose technology is far advanced of anything that's in the insurance industry, who can easily connect with you, who understands how ecosystems work, and, and plug into their 100,000 customers and then offer what you were offering before that way around. And that's what's got the traction. It takes so long on a B2C, you know, marketing, advertising basis to get access to the number of customers you can get by picking the right partners. Uh, it's been it's been an absolute game changer. It doesn't stop the naysayers going. This is like the old bad old days of premium protection indemnity type of things. I don't really buy that. I, I, I think that it's, it is abusable. Um, but the regulators are much smarter about this stuff these days. And I think that what's actually being provided here is something that people do want in a way that they want it, uh, you know, and when they want it. And as long as you're doing that and you're doing it in a, in a well thought out way, I can't see how it's got anything to do with the bad old days of mis-selling. No, and I want to pick up on that regulation point there, a couple of things. You know, I, I've certainly felt this for a while, but increasingly been saying this. You know, regulation is one of the biggest biggest drivers of innovation. And we did a fascinating discussion earlier this week with Predicat and Lloyds talking about emerging risk scenarios. And on the one hand, it's pretty horrendous, the potential losses that could come from you know, sugar, opioids, PFAS, which I'm not going to try and spell out, but it's basically sort of nasty 
plastics and substances and fire retardant foam that you know, can cause cancer and all sorts of horrible things. Lloyd's actually, from a regulatory point of view, is actually often led on this, but it it's also plays well to the nature of Lloyd's of being able to underwrite unusual and complicated risks. On one hand, the regulator's saying you need to understand what you're exposed to. But on the other hand, they're saying now you've got better models, you can underwrite more. So that's worth, well worth a listen to. It's on the website or on our Bright Talk channels. And it's a sort of, you know, a very useful sort of user guide to what's happening in that space. And of course, the other big news, although I'm still surprised by how few people have really understood this, is the Bank of England through the PRA, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, have actually now are acquiring uh, most, well, all the major UK insurance companies to communicate what they're going to be doing about climate change risk in the future. And climate change, you know, we see a little bit through the ESG, the Environmental Societal Governance Reporting. All, all public listed companies have to talk about it in their reports. But this is actually getting much more short term and real and quantifiable. And it's putting some quite heavy demands on insurance companies and even heavier on banks because they're so far behind insurers. We also did another really interesting event, as I've touched on before, with NASDAQ and Fathom talking a little bit about this. I think that's going to be one of the biggest drivers for data analytics related to everything related to do with perils and hazards and climates. And I think, Robin, it looks like the heat wave has has actually ended where you are because you're wearing a sweater. But here in London, it's still pretty warm before the weather breaks. So uh, I think climate change is, is definitely manifesting itself. And, of course, we have the big floods in Europe last week and now seeing some pretty horrendous stuff coming out of China with people being caught in uh, undergrounds and things. But, yeah, that's going to be a big theme that I just think the the industry as a whole hasn't really picked up on yet. But everybody will raise the issue of climate change or they will raise the issue of ESG and they'll say, what's everybody else doing? Uh, And and if you ask them to, to actually be specific about what they want to do, but being slightly simplistic about it, most people will say, I want to do what everyone else is doing. And what I think is part of another theme, as you've touched on there, is that I'm not sure the extent to which the industry is driving this stuff anymore. I think that the levels of funding available to you know the, the companies that you just mentioned, you know, the Predicats, the Cape Analytics, and the people that you showcase so well, um, you know, with your podcasts, and that they're, they're the ones driving change. They're getting the money and they're building the right technology. And now it's about the industry's ability to adopt that. And, and I go further. I mean, people are talking about ridiculous valuations. I, mean, I don't think it really matters because if investors were prepared to put the money into those things, why wouldn't you let other people fund the next generation of technology that you really need? And all you then need to do as an insurance company is help you know, because somebody else is paying for it. Um, Economist read a great article this week about this. You know, there's no downside. If, if, the, if the truth is that investors can get their hands on money incredibly easily and then don't know how to deploy it or, or need to deploy it and are deploying it in a competitive way so that pushes prices up, that needs to be embraced because, it, 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 you know, it, it hasn't got much downside for us, the consumers or the customers of the technology that comes out of that. Uh, and the industry's job is then made a lot easier because it doesn't actually need to fund this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would just recommend the interview I did or the podcast with William Hawkins from KBW, which is a, a big investment bank, and William is the equity analyst following insurance stocks in Europe. But you know, what he talks about is relevant worldwide. And we had a very good discussion about, you know, A, even back where we started, Robin, about, you know, is your short relevance to CEOs and boards? And he said every single one of them now absolutely recognizes it's relevant. Yeah, it's different than it was five years ago, but none of them are saying this is the next dot com and we should ignore it. Um, and then the, the second part of that is, 
yeah, how difficult it is and why it's so difficult for them to be able to innovate and you know the, the pressure on quarterly earnings and the speed of change and things. But it's a really, really interesting insight from you know it's the kind of people we don't often hear about who are actually working directly with these you know, multi-billion dollar corporations making investments in IT of all kinds. And the other point he makes in there is yeah, the level of spend on IT is is an order of like 20 or 30 times higher than what's been going into InsureTech. That doesn't mean that's a bad thing for InsureTech because it's growing much faster. But, yeah, they're still investing in a lot of incumbent in, in technologies and just fixing stuff. So, as you say, with investors coming in, raising large amounts of money to you know, stimulate new growth, I think is the right thing. And ultimately, as we've seen, although people don't release press releases on this, a number of these investors will pull the, pull the money out if the, if the growth isn't good enough from the company. I mean, that's the other side of this story. We can all say, they, hey, they're you know getting a bit ambitious and doing the funding, but you know, it's hard work if you're running one of those companies and, and uh, or working in one and you don't deliver on what the investors expect. Well, there's a very good reason why I sit this side of the fence and comment on and occasionally criticise insurance companies for not being innovative enough. But, but, but in, in many cases, I haven't got answers to the questions that they have to face down. You know, I think that perhaps this brings us full circle to the way we started. The truth is that there are, uh, you know, um, quite a lot of companies out there who completely and utterly get it and are spending a vast amount of money. And, and, and I regularly have conversations with people in big and small insurance companies who are really impressed with their knowledge and are clearly investing heavily. And then every now and again, my heart sinks when I go to the opposite end of the spectrum and someone says, what's insurtech, which they did, you know, to me not long ago. And I actually had another interesting discussion this week with a large insurance company, uh, and they were kind of giving an hour talking to their innovation team and underwriters about what's happening in this space. And actually, one of the questions was, how are we getting on them, not us, relative to their peers? And you know, I was quite honest. I said, this is an organization that five years ago was really well known for innovation, and I'm not going to name the company, but yeah, there's a few of them out, out there a bit like this. Did some really good things, put money in early, you know, stimulated growth, and over the last couple of years, they seem to have just you know, it's just disappeared and, and, and they all completely agreed. You know, there's the frustration as we work for these companies. A lot of the discussion was how do you innovate if you're in those companies and want to make a difference? And my answer was, which I would say to anybody, you can still innovate if you're in an organization, but innovation can mean something as simple as what we use, like otter.ai for doing transcripts, where we take the recording from this and we get a Word document out of it and it just saves a huge amount of time. That's innovation. It doesn't have to be innovation at a big scale, but you do enough of those every week or month and you make a big difference to your company. So I think there still is, you know, there's still hope to be had for these companies, but it has to sort of start both from the top and the bottom. I've had now 22 years of stubbornly believing in my kind of digital version of the future. And, and it'll take a lot more to um, persuade me that I'm, there still isn't some sense in it somewhere. What were you doing before that? that you had no interest in the digital future. And what happened 22 years ago that suddenly get, you know, the light came on? I was in the insurance industry and I got fed up with it. Uh, and, and probably, um, more relevantly, I got fed up with the people I was working with. But, and, and this is a slightly sort of downbeat note to, to round off. I, I was approached by a chap called Alex Lett. He had the evangelical vision. He said, look, the whole world is going to go digital and, and, you know, insurance doesn't get it, but it's going to be. And, and, you know, Robin, come with me and I'm going, I'm going to make you millions. Uh, and he was very persuasive. Um, so I went and did it. But um, the rather sad news is Alex died a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then I didn't realize quite how many people he used to help along the way because I've got endless emails now saying, uh, Alex used to tell me about these kind of things. Can you now help me? Uh, including several VCs in that. 
So I seem to have taken over his role as um, as well as my own, as a sort of advising people who are entering the space. Well, I know he's a very good friend of yours, and it's, it's a very sad story, but I've got to say I massively admired his courage. And I'd known Alex not as well as you, but from the beginning, and always admired. You know, he was sort of the person that wouldn't wear a suit in the industry and called it out for what it was. And even right to the very end, you know, he was posting on LinkedIn, and he had an incredible number of people that – yeah, that reached out to that post that, you know, responded that didn't know him. But, I, you know, I think it was a great testament a little bit back again to where he started on analog versus digital, which is a lot of the world revolves around personalities and personal connections and, and authenticity comes through. So, yeah, I know I was very, very sad news about Alex, but, uh, you know, he, he launched you into a career and we are, you know, we are making a difference. We're seeing it through all the people that are supporting us. And as you said, you know, people now contacting you and I asking for help so on that more upbeat note i think you know we can look forward to even more active next few months now we go live as opposed to being able to do things from home and we've now got an office and doing events so i think with that we should probably wrap things up let you have your lunch and uh look forward to seeing people the 14th of september or earliest because we're now back in town meeting people again see everyone soon see you soon bye Well, well done to us all. We made it to the end. Now, let me know if you want to find out about our event in California on the 18th of November, taking part or sponsoring or just coming along. All details of our monthly events in London now confirmed up to the end of the year and starting on the 14th of September. Now, we have over 130 corporate members at Instec London, one third of which are in the US. And as you just heard, we're building up our team. So if you'd like a chat about how we can help you with membership anywhere in the world to get your stories out, contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.london. London.